you'll discover that there are three pages for tonight, and it'll be particularly important that you have these pages. I think Trey and Mike are passing out. If you didn't receive them, raise your hands. When Edie discovered there were three pages, she said, you're going to have to move from 34 to 78 RPMs. <laughs> so we'll see if I can do that. I certainly want to stick closer uh, to the sheets because we do have so much to cover. But we're going to be talking about the parables of Jesus. And I hope what I've prepared for you will be very helpful to you. The parables of the kingdom, Scotty has been speaking upon them in Sunday mornings, uh, largely from Matthew's Gospel. We will focus on Mark, as we've been doing throughout the course of uh, the summer, and we will continue with that way. And this is part two of dealing with the later phases of the Galilean ministry. We'll wrap that up next week with part three, dealing with Jesus and the demonic. If you've ever wondered uh, what uh, Jesus' ministry was all about, you discover an enigmatic word like 1 John 3.8 that God sent his Son into the world to liquidate the, the works of the devil. Then I think next week will be of particular importance uh, to you. By way of review in advance, last week we talked about the cycle of discipleship. You remember that that cycle begins with the call to be with Jesus. That call involves us in facing a variety of situations with Jesus. And we discovered last week it makes an enormous difference whether you face situations like conflict or teaching or exposure to the demonic disease and death and, of course, to rejection, whether you face those in your own strength or you face them with Jesus. And only when you've been with Jesus in a variety of these situations are you prepared to be commissioned to speak his word, and to do his work. And the cycle of discipleship is advanced as we move into that phase, but it is not complete. It is complete only when we have come back to Jesus and reported to him all that we have taught and all that we have done. And we hear him say, now come and be with me once again. That's the cycle of discipleship. But I welcome the opportunity to bring it before you again to tell you about what we know of the Jewish background of the apostolate, of those apostles that Jesus originally chose to be with him. The most careful work that has been done has pointed in the direction that it was the Jewish offer, office of the Sheliach that stands behind our Greek term apostolos or our English term apostle. 
Shaliach comes from a Hebrew verb, shalak, which simply means to send. A shaliach is a commissioned agent. And the way it worked is I have to be here Wednesday nights. But I discover a piece of property that I've been particularly interested in is going to be for sale next Wednesday evening. I commission a trusted person to be my commissioned agent. And the fundamental rule about the office of the Shaliach is the word of the Shaliach is as binding as the word of the one who commissioned him. That means that I'm going to give specific direction in terms of the size of the property, what I'm willing to pay per acre, the conditions that the land must have for me to take possession of it. And let's say that I agree to the figure of $10,000 per acre. Very valuable land, and I want five acres. If my agent agrees this is the piece of property I should buy and commits me to $10,000, I can't show up a few days later and say, oh, look, there are stones on the property. I didn't count on that. Oh, look, there's a scarred tree. Oh, you know, going through and trying to devalue and say, hey, I'll only give you 8000 No. If my Shaliach committed me to 10000 that's what I must pay. Now, Shaliach is not a free agent. He can't go and say, this is a very valuable piece of property Bill would want. I think it's worth $12,000 an acre. Now, if I have said 10000 is all I will pay, he is not a free agent. He is bound by the word that I have given to him. Now what happens if my Shaliach becomes sick and can't proceed and carry out the commission? The commission stops right there. He is my agent. He can't say, Mike, I'm unable to do this for Bill. Will you now take over the commission and carry it? That doesn't work. And the work of the Shaliach is not complete until he comes back to me and he tells me, this is what I have said, this is what I have agreed to, and this is what will bind you. That's the Jewish office of the Shaliach. It is almost certainly the foundation behind discipleship, behind the apostleship. That's very important. Now remember the two purposes for which Jesus called the twelve to be with him and to be commissioned to speak his word and to do his work. I was associated with some who are here in the work of YWAM, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, the urban project in Amsterdam. Anybody associated with YWAM knows that DTS stands for Discipleship Training School. And if you decide that you're going to go to a discipleship training school, 
you will commit yourself for a certain period of time to intensive study that begins with the school phase. But it doesn't end until there has been an outreach phase. So a school phase followed by an outreach phase. What was happening with Jesus and the Twelve? It was DTS Capernaum. A school phase. They were with Jesus in a variety of situations. And then they were sent out two by two, and they preached that men and women and young people should repent because that was the message of Jesus. They were authorized to cast out demonic spirits. And they anointed many with oil. And healing took place. There was a, there was a proclamation ministry and there was a healing ministry, a mercy ministry, because that was the work of Jesus. That's what we had was DTS, Capernaum. And the element of accountability that's so important to the office of the Sheliach that completes and renews the cycle of discipleship is when the twelve come back and they tell Jesus all that they have done and all that they have said. And Jesus says, Now come apart. Come with me and rest. Because Jesus wants to teach them new things. And that cycle continually renews itself. You are either in a phase where you're with Jesus or a phase where you are speaking for Jesus and doing his work or you're coming and reporting all that you have said and all that you have done. And you hear him say, now there are new experiences to which I wish to expose you. That is the cycle of discipleship. Now from there, I want to move into the parables of the kingdom, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, 20 to 35, because there we begin to get something of the context in which we are to listen to the parables of Jesus. At several points this summer, we have learned to listen to the structure of Mark's Gospel, and we've discovered many important insights by paying attention to structure. When Brenda typed this up for me, she said, Bill, surely there is one word that can't possibly be correct. It's that word intercalation. Oh, I said, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> but I knew probably Almost no one would know what intercalation is. So I use the very pedestrian phrase, it's a sandwich device. It works this way. Mark begins to tell you a story. He suddenly cuts it off and intrudes a different story, but a related one. And then he returns to the first story and he rounds it off. That's what the structure of 320 to 35 is all about. He tells us that Jesus was so involved with ministry, he had no time to eat and sleep properly. And that word reached Nazareth where his family was. 
and they became deeply concerned. They came from Nazareth to Capernaum, convinced he had had a mental breakdown, and they were going to forcibly take him home. They were going to disrupt his ministry. And verses 20 and 21 are all about that. I call that perhaps the lower part of the sandwich, the first piece of good whole wheat bread. All of a sudden, Mark stops telling you what the outcome of that journey to Capernaum was all about, and he tells you of a different group that came to Capernaum. They were the biblical scholars from Jerusalem. And they don't say that Jesus has lost his mind. What they say is he has a demonic spirit. It is as serious a word as the word he has lost his faculties. That's what verses 20 to 30, excuse me, 22 to 30 are all about. Notice verse 22 of chapter 3. The teachers of the law, the biblical scholars who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And verse 30, Jesus responded in this way because they were saying he has an evil spirit. What Mark wants you to see is that opposition to Jesus came from his own family and it came from the biblical scholars of the day, the very best in the land. One used one device, one used another, but the effect would have been the same, the disruption of Jesus' ministry. And having told you about the biblical scholars, verses 31 to 35, Mark puts the top piece of bread on the filling, as it were, and he tells you of the arrival of Mary and the brothers of Jesus. They can't get in the house where he's teaching. So packed is that house with people. So they send word from one person to another that finally reaches him while your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And Jesus looks at the twelve. He looks at those who have come to sit at his feet. And he said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Those who do the will of God. The new family is being created that takes priority over even your nuclear family. Your familial family, if you please. Now from that sandwich device, telling the beginning of the story of Jesus' family, superimposing the story of the biblical scholars who come to put a ban on Capernaum, and then the top layer of the bread, the rounding off of the story about the family. From that, you know that the context in which Jesus will speak about the parables of the kingdom is one of rejection of Jesus, rejection of his message, rejection of the extent of his commitment to the will of God and the work of God. 
It'll be the context of hostility. In the presence of unbelief and rejection, Jesus turns to parables. Now, what is a parable? It certainly is the most memorable form of Jesus' teaching. But what you need to know is that parables were not unique to Jesus. If you went to the synagogue on Friday evening for the regular weekly service, it wouldn't surprise me at all that the rabbi would get and drive home a lesson with a parable. There are many rabbinical parables, many early Pharisaic parables that have come down to us. And let me tell you, one of them, so you get an idea that this was not unique to Jesus, but it was a Jewish way of teaching. You remember in the Old Testament that God gave manna. I don't know if you've ever thought about that word, manna. But the Hebrew word for what is ma. And roughly translated is it, it's really, I pray, ana. And when the ma and the ana come together, you get mana. They said, mana, mana, what is it? What is it? It's like coming into the kitchen. And you smell something strange, and it looks a little strange, mana. <laughs> All right. Now, you remember with the mana that God said you will gather enough for one day, unless you were approaching the Sabbath, and then you'd gather enough that would carry you over for two days. So naturally, the question came up from the people of God, why did God say only gather enough for one day? And this parable was told. There was a king, and he had two sons. He loved them very dearly. But when the elder of the two sons came of legal age, reached his majority, he came to his father and he said, Father, I have now reached my majority. I am of legal age. Give me my share of the inheritance. And out of love for the young man, the father gave him his share of the inheritance. And the boy took what, or the young man took what was his, and left the kingdom, and the father never saw him again as he went out to establish a kingship of his own. Some years later, the younger of the two sons reached his majority and came to his father and said, Father, I've now become a young man of legal age. Give me my share of the inheritance as you gave my brother his share of the inheritance. The father looked at him and said, I'll give you enough to live for one day. You must hate me, father, the boy exclaimed. Why, my brother comes to you and says, give me my inheritance, and you give him his inheritance. I come and I make the same request, and you tell me you're going to give me enough for one day. You must surely hate me. The father looked with great love at his son and said, not at all. 
is precisely because I love you. And I want to look upon your face that I will give you enough for one day so that when you come back and receive what is to be yours for the next day, I will have the chance to look into your face. I gave your brother his inheritance and I have never seen his face again. It's because I love you that I ask you to come back every day and receive enough for that day. It's a wonderful parable. So parables were simply a Jewish form of preaching. Now behind our word parable in English, parable in Greek, there stands the Hebrew expression mashal. And mashal can describe figurative speech of any kind. If you were to turn, for example, to the fable of the trees which Jotham told one of the judges, the deliverers of the people, you would find that there is a very interesting fable where he said the trees decided they needed a king. So they turned to the olive tree, will you be our king? But the olive tree said no. They turned to the cedar. They turned to the vine. And finally, they turned to a bramble bush. Not a very impressive tree. And the bramble bush said, All right, if you want me to be king, but if you don't, out of me will come a fire that will destroy even the cedars of Lebanon. It is an extended figure of speech, and the Hebrew expression is, Jotham told them a mashal. So it's a fable. Or what about Samson? You know that Samson was famous for telling riddles. If you were to turn to Judges 14, for example, and verse 12 through 14, let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. The term is mashal. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your mashal. They said, let's hear it. And he replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. It is clearly a riddle, and it's called mashal. I make that point simply to say, mashal can mean any figurative form of expression or speech. But more commonly, it is an extended comparison in which some aspect of the truth which is unknown is clarified by reference to an aspect of the truth which is well known. Jesus is preaching in Galilee. Galilee is wonderful farmland. He's speaking to farmers. 
That's why so many of the parables are about what a farmer does. He goes and he scatters his seed. There is sowing, there is growth, there is harvest. He's talking to farmers. They know all about that. What don't they know about? They don't know what the kingdom of God is all about. In the preaching, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Or he's speaking to women who every day of their life bake bread. Who know that if you take a wooden bowl filled with bread dough and you put in a pinch of yeast, it's going to impact the entire bowlful of dough. They're very familiar with that. What they don't know is what the kingdom of God is all about. So you take what is unfamiliar, the kingdom of God, and you compare it to what is very familiar, farming, fishing, the finding of a treasure that's been buried in a field, the baking of bread, and all of a sudden, you begin to have some insight. For example, in Mark 4, 26, notice the typical language that is used in this parable. This is what the kingdom of God is like. See, I'm going to compare it to something. This is what it is like. Or take verse 30. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable, what mashal, shall we use to describe it? And then Jesus gives a parable. Now, turn the sheet over. What we can see from those little examples is that in a parable there is an analogy that is being developed. And the analogy is between some experience in the natural realm to some aspect of redemptive truth. And by contemplating the familiar, what we do every day, we begin to get some insight into the unfamiliar, the proclamation that the kingdom of God has drawn near. Now, a key to many parables is that there were certain fixed metaphors in Jewish preaching. That is, you see certain figures emerging again and again. In the Jewish parable I shared with you, the parable of the king and his two sons, the king is always a fixed metaphor for God. So is the person of the father in the parable of the prodigal son or the son who wastes his inheritance when he goes off to a foreign land and begins to sow his wild oats. Harvest is such a prominent aspect of many of the farming parables. And on the basis of Joel, chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, where God is going to call for his angels to put in the sickle and to begin to reap the harvest, it becomes a great fixed metaphor for judgment. So we can look 
in the parables for a fixed metaphor. But point five is very important. Parables often assume the form of a very realistic account. So realistic that you and I are drawn into the situation before we know it. And we will make a judgment upon it before we know someone has been telling us a parable. And the best example will be found in Second Samuel chapter 12 in the famous parable that Nathan told David after he had taken Bathsheba, his wife, and seen to it that her husband Uriah was put on the front lines where he had been killed. Listen to the account. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to me, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now remember, Nathan was one of David's honored and respected counselors. The parable was told. But it is so realistic that David immediately is filled with indignation as he thinks about it. Why, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan springs the trap. Verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? by doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. It is devastating. But the realism of the account was so graphic, David was forced to make a judgment upon it. The parables frequently will have such powerful impact upon us because of the realism in the parable itself. On the other hand, there are parables that have what I call atypical features, which are deliberately included to get our attention or to shock us. For example, in Mark 12, Jesus tells to the priests a parable about certain tenant farmers. Galilee was a land of great estates, but frequently the owners were absentee owners. But they had made an arrangement. Why, Michael, you and your family will be permitted to live on this land, but you will see that nine parts of the harvest comes to me, and you may keep one part of the harvest for you. Well, it's Michael that's going to bear the heat of the day. It's Michael that's going to do the hard work of clearing the land and planting the vineyard and, and watching over it. No wonder a spirit of resentment can be birthed in Michael. Well, as Jesus tells this parable, there is a very optical feature. When the harvest time comes, the absentee owner sends his servants to collect what's owed him, nine parts of the harvest. But instead of giving even one part of the harvest to them, Michael and his family stone them. Or, you know, they, they do something drastic to them and drive them off. wound them, all kinds of things. Well, the, the owner, the absentee owner says, Michael and his family didn't honor and respect my servants, but surely they will respect and honor my son. So I'm going to send my son. And what does Michael and his family do? They kill him. Boy, that ought to shock us. They say, here comes the heir, kill him! It's what I call an atypical feature. It surely gets our attention. We have to ask what on earth is going on, and we'll see in just a moment. Now, number seven gives us the first of some important principles of interpretation when dealing with the parables. When listening and responding to a parable, don't concentrate on the detail. Concentrate, rather, on the big picture. And an excellent example is that famous parable that all of us know about a farmer who goes out and he scatters his seed and there is growth 
and there is harvest. I can take off of my shelf books that will interpret this parable for you that put all of the emphasis on the act of sowing. I can pull off other books and put in your hands that will put all of the emphasis on the act of harvest. But what Jesus wanted you to see is the big picture. So how do we read that parable? Let's take a look at it. It begins with a call to listen. To listen very carefully. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came out, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying thirty, sixty, and even a hundred times. You plant one bushel of wheat, and you get thirty bushels, or sixty bushels, or even a hundred bushels return. What is Jesus saying? The kingdom of God is like what happens in farming. There is sowing, there is growth, and there is harvest, and the whole picture is what you're to carry away. Don't focus simply upon the act of sowing. Scholars and interpreters who do usually say, what a foolish farmer this is. See, he scatters the seed. Oh, here's the path. I'm going to put some on the path. Here's a macadamized uh, parking lot. Let's put some seed there, too. <laughs> no wonder the birds come and eat it. See? And what a foolish farmer. Why, there are thorns. Let's put some in there. <laughs> so they speak of the wasted seed. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> or they put all the emphasis upon the harvest. why there are some who are going to appear before God and they are like 30 bushels and some 60 and some 100. No, no. Jesus wants you to see the kingdom of God is like what happens to seed. There is sowing, there is growth, and there is harvest. Eight is very important. Another important principle, the key to the interpretation of a parable may be provided by knowledge of first century practices and customs which were well known to Jesus' listeners, but which you and I discover only through earnest study. And here, let's go back to that parable of the sower. The key to the parable of the sower is that in Palestine, in the first century, planting preceded plowing. 
exactly the opposite to what we do. We plow the field, we cultivate it, we prepare the soil, then we plant the seed. But we have several rabbinic statements that go like this. Sowing, plowing, grow, harvest. Now all of a sudden I understand what's happening. Why did the farmer scatter seed upon the path? Because it's going to be turned over by the plow. What about the scattering of seed on stony ground? Oftentimes, in parts of Palestine, you'd have a very thin layer of soil and underneath it, limestone. But the limestone cannot be seen until the plow comes and turns over the soil. He didn't know it was stony ground. And as for the thistles and the thorns, why they grow up later. And they are destructive to the seed. But the key is the first century custom, you scatter the seed. And then you plow it underneath. Let's take that parable that I mentioned to you in Mark 12 about Michael and his family as tenant farmers. Why, when they see the sun coming, do they say, Aha! Here is the air. Let's kill him and the vineyard will be ours. I can show you a series of studies of that parable that say this is totally unrealistic. But if you will do your homework, if you will have access to a book on the parables of Jesus where some scholar has done his homework, you will discover there is a category in rabbinic law that has to do with property that belongs to no one because the heir has been slain. And the provision was when there is ownerless property, the first one to stake it out becomes the owner of that property. Now the tenant farmers say, we got rid of all those servants and now that the son comes, the father must surely have died. So here is the heir. If we kill him, we'll have ownerless property. We simply have to stake it out, and then the vineyard will be ours. Now, no wonder Jesus said, what will the owner do? Well, I'll tell you what he'll do. He'll come with a great band of men, and he'll slay those wicked tenant farmers, and he will give the tenancy to someone else. But it is a realistic detail. A good commentary on the Gospel of Mark will tell you about that. That's the purpose of a commentator. To share with you first century background that helps you to understand the parables. Nine. Another important consideration. Sometimes the distinctiveness of Jesus' parables can be appreciated if you know that he is using a familiar parable, one that you could have heard when you went to the synagogue on Friday evening. Let me give you an example. We all know the parable 
that Jesus told about a man who hires day workers to work his fields. He shows up down at uh, the square in Franklin, 6 o'clock in the morning, and there are men who have gathered and want to be hired for the day. And he says, how about it? Let's work for the day's wage, a denarius, go into my field and work. And they do. He's back 9 o'clock in the morning, and he hires still others, saying, I'll give you what's appropriate. Again, at noon, and then very graciously, he's even there 3 o'clock in the afternoon, where some of the lazy men of Franklin have finally shown up at the monument, and they want to be hired as well. And he says, go into my field. I'll give you what's appropriate. And almost unbelievably, five o'clock in the afternoon, when the day ends at six, he is there and he says, Michael, I'll take you as well. Giving you what's appropriate. Go into my fields. You remember that when the time came to pay the wage, says, Michael, you come first. Here is a denarius. Here's the full day's wage. Oh, boy. Those who went 6 o'clock in the morning say, hey, are we ever going to clean up? Are we ever going to clean up? Twelve. Can you believe it? The day's wage is one denarius and we're going to get twelve. But you know what happened. Each one gets a denarius. And when those who had borne the heat and the labor of the day complained, you remember that the owner says, look, if I choose to be generous, what's that to you? Take your denarius and go home. Now that parable is a Jewish parable that was familiar from the synagogue. Only the punchline is different. You remember that Jesus' parable, the punchline is, if I wish to be generous... What is that to you? God is generous. His heart is open to us. That's what the message of grace is all about. But what is the punchline in the rabbinic parable? This man did in one hour more than you did in twelve. In other words, he earned his denarius. He earned it. You see the difference? And the distinctiveness of Jesus' teaching comes to the start. Take the last page, please. It's very important for me to stress to you that Mark 4, 11 and 12 is not, as many commentators will say, the purpose Jesus has in telling parables. Begin reading at verse 10. When Jesus was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the riddle of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. NIV, so that, it sounds like a purpose clause, they may be ever seen but never perceiving, 
ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. In other words, there are commentators that will tell you, Jesus told the parables to harden the hearts of the people. That is absolutely false. That expression that the NIV translates so poorly, so that, in the Greek, simply cannot, usually introducing a parable clause is a short form of hina plerothe, in order that this parable, that this statement from the Old Testament might be fulfilled. It is a comment on the hostility and the rejection of Jesus in which he turns to tell parables. And what are parables all about? It is Jesus pleading with you not to say no to him not to say no to the kingdom of God too quickly. Keep yourself open. The parables in three gods, we turn to them again and again, and Jesus deliberately uses them because he wants us to be open to the message that the kingdom of God has drawn near. I'm not going to go into point D. I'll take that up when we take up by way of review in advance next time. It's a little outline that you can work with as you work through the parables of chapter 4 in Mark. But point 6 is important. See the parables as riddles told to keep the people open and intrigued with the message of the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus. Now, what is the challenge of the parables of the kingdom? The challenge is for us in our day to find fresh analogies, fresh metaphors that we can develop that will keep people intrigued and open to the message of the kingdom of God come near. And let me give you an example. At the New York World's Fair, perhaps some 25 years ago, the National Council of Churches had a an exhibit where they offered parables. You went in and you saw a film. It was a film that scandalized many Christians. Why? Because Jesus was depicted as a clown. So they focused, Christians focused on the detail, Jesus is being called a clown, and they were scandalized. But this is the way parable began. The kingdom of God is like a circus that came to town. And if you gave that film half a chance, there was image after image that showed the redemption that Jesus brought. When people are burdened down, the clown comes and he takes the buckets of water for the elephants. When people are like marionettes that are put by the great circus master, who has a great mask on his face. 
and he's jerking them one way and another, and there is the cruciform, like Jesus on the cross. The clown comes and removes them from the harness and puts the harness around itself. I suggest that you see parable as an example of what might be done to talk to people in Franklin, Brentwood, Nashville that have never heard the message of the kingdom of God and of the redemptive love of Jesus. But what parable will you write? And I would welcome a week from now any parable that you chose to develop. The kingdom of God is life. And sign them with your address, your phone number. I'll look at every one of them. But we need to be as creative in developing the message of Jesus as Jesus himself was. Let's close prayer. Our Father, we confess how impoverished our witnessing has frequently been because we've not brought our minds into the framework where we can approach persons who simply have never been acquainted with Jesus and his grace. We acknowledge that we have more a sense of comfort in talking with one another than we do with those who are outside the church. But Jesus came to deliver the message of the kingdom and to embody that message and to bear the burden of the judgment that should have fallen upon us and to set us free. And the parables were one of the most effective ways that he did it. Give us creativity. Give us thoughtfulness. Help us to enter into the experiences of those who don't know Jesus. That by using what is familiar to them, we can introduce them to the one who is unfamiliar, the person of Jesus. And that which is unfamiliar, your kingship and absolute claim upon our lives. We pray this earnestly through Jesus Christ, the great parable share. Amen. You are